We are going into God's Word, as we always do, back to the book of Isaiah. If you will, join me there. Let me tell you which verse I prefer. Well, yeah, we've been in chapter 8, chapter number 9, and maybe you could go there first. I'm going to have you everywhere today. Just We're going to do finger exercises before we begin. All right? Because we've got some verses to look at today. I'd like to kind of cap off our study that we have been on, a light in the darkness. And uh, also use this opportunity this morning to prepare our hearts for our communion service. That's part of our, uh, our service here this morning. I always seem to enjoy the fact that... Uh, December tends to lend itself to five weeks, and the last Sunday of the month is a communion Sunday. It will be that way in 2019 as well. We saw the schedule today, and we will get to do that again. Um, So, I think it's a wonderful reflection on what Christ has done for us as we look at these things today. It's very important that we understand the light that's shown in the darkness with Christ. And that's where our study has been, and that's what we're going to look at here today, too. Tonight, we're going to uh, actually have a New Year's Eve-style service. It will be, I have a message to you from God's Word about thoughts that you might want to carry into the New new Year. So, we encourage you to join us tonight at our regular time, and next week, we'll pick up on the Book of Ruth. Uh, as we're studying through the Old Testament. So, I'd encourage you to join us here this evening as well. It's not New Year's Eve, but it's as close as I'm going to get to it this year for a a church service. I won't do it tomorrow night. That's too late for me, maybe too late for you guys too. I don't know how the youth leaders do that, but uh, somehow they do it. Okay, I have you in Isaiah. I'd really like to do this first. Let, Let me put it this way. I'm going to read to you from chapter 42, all right, verse 6 and verse number 7. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. Here it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Maybe your translation in front of you did what is here in the New American Standard Version. What does it do with the pronoun you? Some of you have the capital letter there, don't you? Several of you nodding your head and saying so. This is a reference to Christ. This is a reference to Christ. The Father saying this of him. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Heavenly Father, we have much to reflect upon here today as we go through your word, much to speak of Christ, and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does, is points to Christ. So we ask that that might 
be done here this morning in all of our lives. Open up our minds, open up our hearts, that we may learn more of Christ and love Him all the more. And as we go into our communion service, truly understand and reflect upon the wonder of it all, that Jesus should die for us, that we might see and know and have eternal life. Thank you for what you've accomplished for us today. Help us to understand it better. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a song we have been singing for many, many, many years. It was actually written in the 1700s. It was by a a man named Charles Wesley. Among those who wrote in a theological way, and I enjoy that about him, and some of these thoughts that he puts into his songs, we scratch our head a little bit and say, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Because it's either too deep for us, or we're not sure if we really think that that's the way it should be said. But it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote for us a song called, And Can It Be? And I want to reflect on that just for a moment with you, and read to you the words. I know the tune will start in your head as soon as I start to read it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love's divine. Tis mercy all. Let earth adore, let angels' mind inquire no more. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. As you have sung that many times, and you might have noticed a verse in there you may not recognize, verse number four of what I just read is our testimony. And I say our on purpose. Whether we knew it or not, we were captives to sin. We were all that way. Captives to sin. We followed its ways. We lived in its realm. We served it. We lived it. Our testimony is the same, folks. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we formerly walked, According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we all too formerly lived 
in the lust of our flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's where we were, till Christ, till Christ came to save us. We were in prison, folks. I've talked this past month about those who live and walk in darkness. We found that here in Isaiah chapter 8, didn't we? The words we've been reading over and over again. Here, starting in verse number 19, going all the way through chapter 9, verse 2. I'm just going to start with verse 22, the last verse of chapter 8. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Then jump to chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who lived in a dark land, the light will shine on them. I'm so thankful for that verse. Consider what it means for a minute to walk in darkness. What an interesting choice of words, to walk in darkness. The definition is to proceed. Just like in walking, it's one step in front of the other. We move forward as we do so. To proceed through the day is a definition of Walking is to proceed. It's how you you move about. It's how you live. And it's rather interesting about living or walking in darkness. You cannot tell where you're going. Because it's dark. You don't know where you started. It gets rather confusing. Even, it could be alarming. At 2.30 this morning, the power went off in Hillsdale. Now, I would have slept right through it, except for the fact that our alarm system here at the church, when the power goes off, I get a phone call at the house to say, Hey, your power's off. And that's an alarming sound in the middle of the night. But it did it twice, because there's this building and then there's the youth building. But that phone went off, I heard the phone, I opened my eyes, and it was pitch black. My first thought, I just went blind. Why can't I see anything? What is wrong with me? We keep a little light light on in the, in the bathroom there for the cat, of course, so she could see. But it was off. It was pitch black in the room. And the phone's ringing. And it startled me. And I couldn't see a thing. Darkness is like that. It could confuse you. You have no idea where you're going. You don't know what you're doing. You could trip on things. I've broken toes walking through my dad's garage in the dark. It wasn't a smart thing to do because he left motors laying in the middle of the, of the floor. And all I wanted to do was open the big door so I could see. Didn't see the motor. It hurts to kick one of those things. Darkness is like that. It robs you of your bearings. 
You have no ability to tell which way is up. You can't find the landmarks. You can't read the signs. You don't know where the holes are. You don't know where the obstacles are. You don't know where the edge is. It's dark. Darkness is often equated with ignorance. You don't know. And you can't go because you don't know where you need to go. Spiritual ignorance is perhaps the worst form of darkness. If you think about it. We sometimes call the medieval age, the years between 500 and 1500 A.D., the Dark Ages. And it wasn't because they hadn't invented the light bulb yet. It was because that was a time where folks lived and they had no access to God's Word. It was kept from them, for the most part. There's quite a story behind all that. And it's very sad to say, it was the organized church doing it. But they kept them from God's Word from knowing God's Word, from reading God's Word, from owning a copy of God's Word. They did not have those things you have today. I don't know what that's like to live an entire life without ever hearing the Gospel. Those folks lived in it. Generation after generation lived and died without ever hearing the truth. That's frightful. Wouldn't you agree? I used to think that that's true of maybe other countries in our land. When you hear of those who come here and talk about Sudan or some other place, and you say, that's amazing, they've never heard the truth. But now I've heard it's just as common here in our country too. That people can spend their entire life in this country and not hear the truth. That amazes me. I'm so thankful that God has given to us His truth. But there are multiples of people, multiple numbers of people who never heard the truth. I don't know what it's like to have stayed in a first century prison either. We read of men like Peter and Paul and others who encountered imprisonment. And I'm sure that when we read it, we don't think that they get a certain number of hours with a TV or a computer or a certain number of meals a day or, you know, a cot and some, you know, linen and all these other things that we might associate with our jails today. You weren't given any comforts in their day. You had a hard floor. Sometimes you were chained to the wall or maybe to a guard. You didn't eat unless somebody you knew brought you your food. It was an interesting thing back then. To be a Christian and to be put in prison for your faith meant you depended on somebody else to feed you, and who would that likely be? Another Christian. And it was a perfect trap for them to know who to arrest next. The book of Hebrews talks about folks who willingly and even joyfully surrendered all that they had in order to go into the prisons to feed their brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews chapter number 10. Amazing stories, I'm sure. But you didn't get fed unless somebody brought you food. There was no heat in the cold. 
There was no breeze in the heat. There was no light when the sun went down. That's a picture of walking in darkness. Many of these instances of people living in darkness, walking in darkness, a picture of it, how often it associates it with prison or captivity, where they're trapped, they can't get out, this is all they see, this is all they get, is darkness. Darkness. I don't know what is the most severe of the consequences of being in prison, but I think darkness would be a tough one to overcome emotionally, mentally, even physically, to be locked up in a dark place. Walking in darkness. What does it mean to live in the darkness? The text says that too. Verse number two. Not only do they walk in darkness, but they live in a dark land. The Greek word, I know it's Old Testament, it's a Greek Old Testament version, the Septuagint, kat oiketo, it means to settle down, to settle down, to house down. The picture is that there's no other options available for those who walk in the darkness, but just to settle there, to live there. It's the only home they can know. It's the only home they will know. That's where they're going to stay as far as they know for the rest of their life. They settled down. It's amazing to me what people settle down in. In our country, we have lots of homes, don't we? Lots of places. And people always seem to be on the move to get to the better place. Want a better house here, a better house there. So... When I first lived in Chicago, we had a lot of roommates. They were black. They were about this long. They had lots of little legs. They're called cockroaches. And you know what? Everyone assumed that would just be the case. It wasn't very pleasant. But they were there. People settled for that. But in that same town, city, Chicago... You could go down the street and you could see a man we called homeless. Homeless. What did that mean? Well, he didn't have a house like you and me. He had no place to go at night to lay down in his bed and such. But he did have his home. It was usually in a shopping cart. Which he found on the side of the road or took out of a grocery store. Everything he owned was packed inside that shopping cart. And he pushed it up and down the street. Up and down the street. And at night, he went, of all places, this always astounded me, down Michigan Avenue. One of the most luxurious parts of the city. Wealth, just everywhere. The windows and all the rest. He'd go down there, and right in front of buildings, like the Tribune Tower or such like that, he'd pull out his cardboard box and set it up against the wall, the outside wall of that place, and he'd crawl into that box for the night. That was his house. And how many times I recall on the cold mornings walking by there and seeing box after box after box after box after box of people sleeping. That was their home. That's what they settled down to that night. It's amazing what we might settle down to, isn't it? Even in that picture, 
the depth of poverty right up the building, against the building of luxury and wealth. God created an interesting world for us to live in, didn't he? What a beautiful world this is. When we reflect upon the way he created it, designed for us to live here, designed with the best of absolutely everything we need to live, God called it very good, didn't he? And then man sinned. We know how the story goes. But man has been in darkness ever since. We settled in to that mode. Living in darkness. We called it home. We got so accustomed to it. Our prison became our comfort. These people lived in the darkness. But Jesus came to change all that. The people who walked in the darkness will see the great light. Those who lived in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Isn't that what we've been looking at for five weeks now? Let's advance our study a little bit further here this morning. And go to the time of Christ. The life of Christ. Travel with me to Luke chapter 4 for a minute. Luke chapter number 4. We're going to start in verse 14. This episode we're about to read is the beginning of his ministry as recorded by Luke. Do you think Jesus knew why he was here? Of course you're saying, of course he knew. He knew why he was here. Well, let's look at these words. In Luke 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the the surrounding districts. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and were praised by all. And he came to Nazareth. What was Nazareth? It was home, wasn't it? It was home. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. His custom. Think of it. Since he was a little boy, coming to that synagogue on the Sabbath day was his custom. He had been there many, 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 many times. Like some of them who would come here after they grew up here and they show up on a Sunday and everyone says, Hey, it's great to see you again. They're not little kids anymore, are they? They're adults. Jesus came into the synagogue where he had been many, many, many times before. People who knew him. People he grew up near. People who watched him grow up. You get the picture? He came home. And there he is in the synagogue. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, 
and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. All right, leave your bookmark right there. You just heard what he said. That came from Isaiah 61. You go back to Isaiah 61 with me and then start to follow some other passages. That's why I encourage you to join me here. Keep your bookmark there. But Isaiah 61, listen to verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and to free and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Say, so, ooh, that sounds very much like it, but not exactly the same words, but very much like it, right? Jesus did leave off a portion of that on purpose. But go back to chapter 42 of Isaiah. Chapter 42, and start with verse number 1. And follow these words with me for a minute. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by my hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prisons. Chapter 42, verse 16. You don't have far to go. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them, and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. Chapter 49. Just a few more pages. Verse number... Isaiah 49, 6. He says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. All these passages speaks of one person, doesn't it? Don't they? Jesus Christ. And what he was commissioned to do by his Father is to come and be the light to those in darkness. Those in prison, those captive, we know it to be the issue of sin. 
And he came to give us salvation. And thankfully, just spread it out over the, all the earth so that we can hear it too. I think it's very interesting that it's said this way. Because when Paul goes to describe this very thing in Colossians chapter 1, in verse number 9, also in verse number 10 and 11, down to verse 14. I'm going to read this to you. Listen carefully. Paul is praying. And he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a worthy manner to the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, and strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. You say, wow, that's quite a prayer, Paul. Well, he gets down to the depth of what it's all about right here, and he says, according to His glorious might, who has qualified the Father, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is what Christ has done for us. The picture is really quite graphic when you walk through the Greek. Because he's not talking some gradual change, like I'm going to slowly start getting out of the darkness, the light's just kind of dawning and just getting a little brighter and a little brighter and a little brighter. The Greek is very emphatic. It grabs you and yanks you out in one move. It's powerful. The Lord snatched you. He grabbed, if you will. I, I think it's pretty intense, but I love it that way. Because I don't want to be slowly drug out of prison. I want out. And that's the picture of this. The powerful picture of this. He didn't leave it as a slow process. He said, you need it out. I got you out. And he pulled us out of the domain of darkness. And just as quickly inserted us into the kingdom of his light. That's what he did. That's a powerful thing just to reflect upon. He took us out of that darkness, put us into His kingdom, and in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's quite a prayer, folks. <laughs> but that's based on the reality of what Christ has done. Folks, you would think that hearing such things would be welcomed by everybody. You would think that everyone would hear such words and say, That's what I want. That's what I need. But if you left your bookmark where I told you to, go back to Luke, chapter number 4. And you will not find the people rejoicing for the truth they just heard. It wasn't so in the day that Jesus came. To that synagogue. In verse number 20. And he closed the book. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began saying to them. Today. This scripture 
has been fulfilled in your hearing. Every circuit breaker just popped. I said, what? What? Right now. They were all speaking well of him. Yes, they were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. They were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, verse 23, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months with a great famine that came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow and a Canaanite at that, folks. The only one who got help. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, a pagan Gentile. He's the one that got help. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up, and they drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. That was close. What a reaction. Does that stun you? He just said why he came. He knew why he came. He read the passage about himself. Said, I'm here to help. I'm here to set you free from your, the poverty, your spiritual poverty. I'm here to set you free from your spiritual illnesses. I'm here to set you free from your spiritual darkness. I'm here to give you life. I'm here. I am your light. And they rejected him. Why? Because men love darkness rather than the light. For their deeds are evil. You see, that's what it means to settle down. (laughs) Where you're so content in the dark that you despise the light. Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. You may say, oh, that is terrible. That's just terrible they responded that way. They tried for three years to extinguish that light, and they finally got what they wanted, and they nailed him to a cross. You know what? Here's the beauty of it all. Here's the beauty of it all. His crucifixion was the solution. For our sin. When we take of this, what are we remembering? A body that's been broken for us, blood that was spilled for us. That crucifixion was the act that Jesus did on our behalf to break us of our bondage. He had to die. To transfer us out. 
He had to go in and pull us out. And he did. This communion service is a reminder, folks. It's a reminder that we have seen the light and the darkness has been conquered. Jesus Christ is our light. And what a great light he is. Do you see it? When we take of these things, this is not just a ritual. I hope not. I hope not when we pass these pieces to back and forth and we think about what he has done for us. Sometimes it makes us very sad, I know. When we reflect upon the fact that it was our sin that did all this. And there's that element, and that's a very true element. We ought to be very humbled by this very thing. That somebody was willing to die for you. Willing to die for me. I, I sometimes think that I don't even know somebody who got a black eye for me. But Jesus died for me. That's humbling. And yet at the same time, it gives me such joy I can't even express. He gave me life. He gave me light. He gave me hope. He gave me peace. He gave me forgiveness. He gave me eternal life. No condemnation, now I fear. All these beautiful truths, because my Savior died for me. That's an amazing thing to reflect upon, isn't it? This truth that God's Word has woven all over the pages, speaking of Christ and what He's done for you and for me. As we partake together with this communion service, we often go to certain passages and say, yes, here it is again, here it is again. 1 Corinthians 13, is, or chapter 11, rather, is a very common passage. I'm just going to read it to you as we get started here. This is how Paul said it. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you know how he passed it out, and they each took of that bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Two things always stand out when I read these passages. One is that he needs to remind us to remember him. Boy, that strikes me right here. How could we forget him? Why would we forget him? It's an interesting phrase to say, this is so that you remember what I have done. The second thing that is remarkable, we're to do this until he comes. In that is the fact, he's coming. He's coming. Maybe this is our last time, folks. And then he comes. But as we partake of these things again this morning, we have something to reflect upon, don't we? To remember, who is this Christ? What did he do? How does it change me? How do I respond to that?